The Brian McClanahan Show, episode 223. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to The Brian McClanahan Show. Back to the Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to have you back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter at Brian McClanahan. Like my Facebook page at Brian McClanahan. And of course, subscribe to my YouTube page where you can watch this podcast at Brian McClanahan. You can find all of my social media buttons on my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. That's B-R-I-O-N, McClanahan.com. While you're there, give me an email address and I will give you a free ebook, Forgotten Founders, and a free audiobook of the same title, read by yours truly. You can also support The Brian McClanahan Show by going to brianmcclanahan.com forward slash support. You can throw a few pennies my way, help keep these lights on, help keep the podcast going. You can also support The Brian McClanahan Show by going to mcclanahanacademy.com, where it's always free to enroll, and I do have six courses available for sale. The newest being Reconstruction and Recreation is a fantastic 25-lecture course that explains how we got into the mess we're in today. And, of course... The main culprit is the grand old stupid party. So, you want to pick that course up. It's part two of my War for Southern Independence course. A lot of great stuff there. I've got one on the Constitution, got one on Hamilton, I've got one on the Declaration of Independence, and one on Secession. A lot of good stuff. McClanahanAcademy.com. You can also support the show by going to LearnTrueHistory.com. LearnTrueHistory.com. That is my affiliate link for Tom Woods Liberty Classroom. You can get over 20 classes there. For a great price, and you can have uh, courses taught by Tom Woods, Kevin Goodsman, Brad Berzer, Jason Jewell, Bob Murphy, myself, of course. So a lot of great stuff there. LearnTrueHistory.com. And while you're on BrianMcClanahan.com, click on Shop at the top of the page, and you can get your Brian McClanahan Show logo gear, T-shirts, wall clocks, plates, stickers, skins for your electronic devices, all kinds of cool stuff. So those are all ways to support the show. I do appreciate anything you throw my way. All right. Well, let's talk about the topic of the day, which we just, I mean, April's a really interesting month. A lot of stuff happens in April, right? I mean, we we have, uh, of course, in these two weeks here, we've got uh, Lee's surrender. We've got uh, Lincoln's assassination. We've got the last major battle of the war. It is Confederate History Month, if you're into that. Uh, We also have Thomas Jefferson's birthday, uh, which is a a big deal. And I'm going to talk about Lincoln and Jefferson this week. So, um, we're going to start with uh, with uh, Thomas Jefferson, and um, we had Jefferson's birthday on April 13th, and I saw a little uh, op-ed in uh, the uh, Richmond Times, um, and it was written by Peter Gibbon. Now, uh, Peter Gibbon, I wasn't familiar with Peter Gibbon. I didn't know who he was. There is a little bio here for Peter Gibbon. And uh, this bio says that Peter Gibbon, let me get to that, is a senior research scholar at Boston University's School of Education. He has directed a Teaching American History program on Thomas Jefferson and writes articles for Humanities Magazine. So he's a leftist. Um, what's interesting about Jefferson is for years, you know, the, the leftists love Thomas Jefferson. I mean, Thomas Jefferson was their guy. Um, what's also interesting is that the progressives, if you look at Herbert Crowley, for example, and, and what the progressives did is they... They took Jefferson and Hamilton and smashed them together, and that's how you got modern liberalism. And the thing I liked about Jefferson was his uh, was his interest in democracy, um, his uh, 
his supposed egalitarianism. Um, so they thought Jefferson was their guy, but of course he was too much of an aristocrat, ultimately, and he believed too much uh, in these uh, ideas of decentralization. So they had to come up with something else. Uh, he was also, you know, skeptical of, of Christianity, and they liked that about him. So uh, they had to come up with something else, and that's where Hamilton fit, right? But, but Hamilton was far too elitist. Hamilton was was a guy that you really couldn't trust to be interested in democracy and egalitarianism. But he was a nationalist, and he loved a strong central government. So you take Jefferson's interest in egalitarianism and Hamilton's interest in a strong central government, you smash them together, and that gives you modern liberalism. But um, you know Jefferson was supposed to be the left's guy for a long time. I think they misread that. Um, and this little piece is interesting because it kind of speaks to that, and I'm going to get into that at the end. But he also brings up one very important part of Thomas Jefferson's life, and that was his disdain for the central government. I mean, Jefferson was not great because of the positions he served in. Jefferson was great because he was Thomas Jefferson. And this is something that I think modern political pundits and politicos and politicians don't understand. They believe they're great because they're elected to office. I mean, look, would Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez be anything if she hadn't been elected by a very small number of people in a, in a district in New York and is able to run her mouth on social media? Would she be anything? Would she be anything if not for that? <clears throat> and I think the answer is clearly no. Well, we can go bigger than that. Would Hillary Clinton be anything if it wasn't for the fact that she was able to um, ride Bill Clinton's coattails when he was in office? And I know people, oh my gosh, how do you say that? That's so mean. Uh, but this is the truth. I mean, Hillary Clinton would have gotten anywhere on her own. I mean, she understood that Bill Clinton was her ticket to, to uh, stardom. Right? Bill Clinton had all, the, had all the means to do it, but Bill Clinton was you know, a, a guy that really wasn't too concerned about governing or uh, you know, ideology. He wasn't any of that. Bill Clinton just wanted to find the ladies. Bill Clinton was just a, hey, it's Bill. Let's go hang out with Bill. That's, that was Bill Clinton. He was just good time in Bill. But Hillary Clinton understood that good time and Bill could get elected to office. And so that's what she wanted. And she rode his coattails into the White House, also to the governor's mansion in Arkansas, then into the White House. And she used that, of course, to advance her career. But we saw in 2016 that Hillary Clinton's a loser. And she had loser ideas. And But she's the participation trophy generation. I, I said this on, on Twitter she is the Mueller investigation was was the result of participation trophy generation. Hillary Clinton deserved it, right? She had been all these things and never got into office. That's because she's a loser with loser ideas. You could say the same thing about Henry Clay or a host of other people who tried and tried and tried to get into the executive office and never got there. It doesn't mean they weren't successful in other things. But even look at Hillary Clinton's political life. I mean, she was Secretary of State because she deserved it, right? Um, and, and the persona around Hillary Clinton was something that was not even real. It was fake. It was fabricated by people who just thought she deserved it. I mean, she kept her mouth shut during Clinton's presidency and kept him in office, and so we need to pay her back. Uh, and this is what made everyone's what made her so mad about Obama, because Obama stole her thunder in 2008. And then, of course, she loses to Trump in 16 because she's a terrible candidate with loser ideas. She's a loser. She only was elected to the Senate of New York, again, because, well, as Hillary Clinton, she, I mean, we, we have to get out of the way and let her run. She's not even from New York. But this is the problem with uh, the way we view politicians today. 
They're, they're great because of the fact that they're in office, which is not why Thomas Jefferson or George Washington or James Madison or any of these people in the founding generation were great. They were great because of who they were. Uh, and of course, we can find all kinds of character flaws in all of these, not really George Washington, but all of these, I mean, Washington had some, and I'll, and I'll talk about this in, in the other podcast this week. Uh, Washington had some of his own problems when it came to governing, but character flaws, he had few. Um, you know, he liked to gamble. Maybe that's a vice, you know. Uh, but uh, overall, um, you know, George Washington was the indispensable man. Uh, Jefferson had his own problems. Madison did. All these people did. I mean, they're people. No one's perfect. But they were great men because of who they were. And they distrusted, they distrusted uh, unlimited power and a central authority. Even the nationalists. I mean, I think Hamilton, you could say, well, he really didn't. I mean, Hamilton loved corruption. Uh, but for the most part, the founding generation distrusted unlimited power and a central authority. They didn't want that. They thought that was very dangerous, something that needed to be avoided. So I'm going to read this piece to you. I think it's, it's, um, it's interesting. So he begins the piece, and this is something that a lot of people don't realize, but he says, quote, Last month, students at Hofstra University on Long Island, New York, held an annual Jefferson has got to go rally. They were agitating to have Thomas Jefferson's monument removed from the campus. Well, this is just stupid, but this is par for the course. You see, as I've mentioned on this podcast, as I've talked about in other places, Confederate monuments are the low-hanging fruit. You're going to, look, you got to get rid of those because there's a large segment of the American population, particularly the neoconservatives, who are fine with it. They'll give tepid lip service, tepid lip service to saying, oh, we got to keep these things up. But at, on the, at the end of the day, they view, they view Confederate soldiers, Confederate leaders as traitors. And so if they come down, so what? But that's just the beginning. See, Hofstra students, even the students at University of Virginia, have attacked Thomas Jefferson's statue. Why? Because Jefferson was a slave owner, you see. And so this piece begins in a way that's saying, well, I mean, this is, uh, this is not a good idea. Why do we have to get rid of Thomas Jefferson's statue? It almost makes it sound like he's not really for that. But we'll read the rest of the piece and we'll get to that. He says, Jefferson died on July 4th, 1826. He had written the epitaph for his tombstone. Here was buried Thomas Jefferson, author of the Declaration of, Inde of American Independence, of the Statute of Virginia for Religious Freedom, and the father of the University of Virginia. There is no mention of his presidency. In a letter to John Adams in 1796, he wrote, quote, I have no ambition to govern men. It is a painful and thankless office. Author, ar architect, scientist, and philosopher, Jefferson professed to prefer his books and family to public life. Still, this would-be recluse excelled at leadership. So it gives you a very laudatory interpretation of Thomas Jefferson. Jefferson uh, was a good leader. Now, I think in some ways, I mean, look, if we want to be honest about Jefferson, he wasn't a very good governor of Virginia. I mean, this is something that Patrick Henry bashed him over. Uh, he wasn't very good at that. Uh, even the people in Virginia were suspicious of Jefferson's ideas on some of the things that he were his pet projects. Now, I will give him credit for the University of Virginia. He intended that to, to uh, be a counterweight to what he called the dark Federalist Mills of the North, which was places, you know, the Ivy League schools, Princeton, Yale, Harvard, that were producing, Southerners were sending their kids there their, as students, and they were coming back with all kinds of Northern ideas, Federalism, 
not real federalism, but the Federalist Party. Oh, and this other thing, pro-slavery ideology. Uh, I mean, you, you can trace, look, Calhoun went to Yale. The president of Yale was one of the most ardent pro-slavery ideologues in the United States. That's something a lot of people don't realize. If you read Larry Tise's pro-slavery ideology, he puts the onus of pro-slavery ideology right back on the North where it belongs because Northern theologians were supremely interested in this. In fact, the first pro-slavery uh, treatise in American history was written in Massachusetts in 1701. I digress. Jefferson had vision. He believed in republicanism and uh, minimal government and meritocracy, and held to a clear set of ideals about the future of America based on the Enlightenment, emphasis on reason, science, and progress. He also believed in the importance of virtue. He gave this advice to his nephew, Peter Carr. Give up money. Give up science. Give the earth itself and all it contains rather than do an immoral act. Um, So I, I think that's an interesting statement because people often critique Jefferson for the Sally Hemings supposed Sally Hemings, Hemings affair. Uh, Jefferson did believe that uh, things like that were potentially immoral. So I'm not, and, and look, the, the, the evidence has been, has been doctored to show that, that Hemings, now the DNA evidence says that a male in Jefferson's family conceived children with Sally Hemings. But there was a, another commission that was uh, organized and then put out a report that said, no, nah, this is probably Randolph Jefferson, Jefferson's brother, looking at the evidence. People like Forrest McDonald were on that commission. I mean, Forrest McDonald is not a pro-Jefferson guy, but he is a very good historian. And he's saying, no, no, to, to come to these conclusions is to distort the evidence. And um, I think that it's clear that this is still an open question, not one that's settled uh, settled history. So um, I think that's the important part about the whole Hemings affair. Uh, to say that Jefferson did it is to stretch the evidence to a conclusion that does not support. But he was a Republican. Uh, he did believe in minimal government, a meritocracy. He did believe in the natural aristocracy, not an artificial aristocracy. These were good things. Um, uh, an excellent administrator, Jefferson worked efficiently and paid great attention to detail. And as ambassador to France, he moved from dealing with whale oil exports to confronting Dutch bankers to analyzing the developing French Revolution. With his penetrating and disciplined mind, he could shift an enormous fund of information. Also true, Jefferson was a brilliant man. I mean, look at his library. Uh, when he sold that to the Library of Congress, Federalists in the North didn't like it because it had too many books on too many different topics and no one could even read all the languages in it. I mean, this is, a, this is actually uh, a, a uh, shining, laudatory statement. These Federalists are languages nobody can read. Jefferson could. He was translating these things. I mean, this is an, a brilliant man. It also shows that the South had a... Um, had a very high standard of the Southern tradition when it came to education. There were more college graduates in the South in the antebellum period than in the North per capita. Uh, George Washington solicited Jefferson's advice on accepting gifts, John Adams on diplomatic procedures, and Lafayette on how to deal with the Estates General. As president, unlike John Adams, Jefferson picked his own cabinet. James Madison and Albert Albert Gallatin, for example, smart, hardworking officers loyal to a man they admired. He solicited written opinions from each cabinet member, contributing to a harmony rare in presidential administrations. Yet there was never doubt about who was in charge. 
an ideologue, Jefferson also could be pragmatic. He recognized that the Louisiana Purchase could not wait for a constitutional amendment, that the federal government could finance roads and canals. So let me, let me stop there for a second. He was only persuaded of that position because both Gallatin and Madison said, look, we don't need an amendment to get the Louisiana Purchase. But Jefferson had drafted an amendment that would have put that into motion. Now, as far as this roads and canals, this is the Drew McCoy position, uh, that uh, this national republicanism was born in the Jefferson administration. And, and Michael Holt says the same thing in his monumental history on the Whig Party. And I think there is some truth to that, though Jefferson still would have been interested in a constitutional amendment to make these things possible. In fact, you look at what Madison and Monroe said about this. It's the same thing Jefferson said. Yeah, I mean, this is a good idea, but we don't have an amendment for it. And so while I might agree with that, we need some type of constitutional mechanism to make these things work. Now, I've been highly critical of Jefferson's administration. If you read Nine Presidents Who Screwed Up America, Jefferson is in one of the four who tried to save her, but only in his first term. His second term was a disaster for the Constitution. His second term was uh, very much off the rails when it came to uh, abuse of of executive power. So um, I think it's important to separate those two terms and I think, uh, you know, when, Ke- when if you read Kevin Goodsman's book on, on Jefferson and um, his, uh, his positions, I, Jefferson was an ideologue, but Jefferson was also firmly dedicated to federalism, which I think that uh, uh, Peter Gibbon misses. He says minimal government, but he doesn't define that. Jefferson was committed to federalism. Um, and that drove his political career more than anything else. Jefferson was an ideologue in Virginia, not necessarily in Washington, D.C. Now, continues, an idealist, he could behave like a politician when necessary, removing Federalist office holders, attacking partisan judges, and ruthlessly casting aside Aaron Burr. Um, removing, well, this is interesting, too, because uh, in the 1800 election, James Byard of Delaware, who swung the election, met with a Jefferson lieutenant and only, only cast his blank ballot, and only persuaded a couple of other states to uh, essentially get Jefferson elected on the assurance that Jefferson would not dismantle the Federalist apparatus that was put in place by both Washington and Adams. And he was given that assurance. Now, Jefferson later in his diary attacked James Byard for this, saying, I never said that. I never told anyone that. And then, of course, James Byard's sons, Richard Byard and James Byard, took to the Senate floor in the 1850s to, uh, to defend their father because Jefferson had basically called their father a liar. Now, James Byard the Elder uh, was anything but a liar. I mean, James Byard the Elder, we may not agree with his politics, but the man was rock solid when it came to integrity. I don't think there was many other individuals in that in that early Federal Republic that were as solidly principled as James Byard the Elder. Um, And this is a man that was participating in the Treaty of Ghent proceedings. It was, look, everyone loved James Byard except for John Quincy Adams. And I think if John Quincy Adams doesn't like you, I mean, John Quincy Adams didn't like anybody, but uh, even John, John Quincy Adams did have nice things to say about James Byard the Elder. He didn't like him, but he had nice things to say about him. So, um, I think that uh, Jefferson could be petty, snipey, and I think that he was uh, lying about James Byard here. 
he, he had given assurances, yeah, we're not going to tear it down. And when you look at what Jefferson, this is not all Jefferson. I mean, look, the, the Republicans in Congress are trying to dismantle the Supreme Court, uh, or I should say the federal court system, at least in a way that the Federalists had created. Um, and attacking Aaron Burr? I mean, look, Aaron Burr deserved it in a lot of ways. <laughs> um, so so what's also interesting about Jefferson is he kept a, a, a bust of Alexander Hamilton at his house. He recognized, and this is where the piece actually says something wrong here. Uh, Jefferson fe- recognized Hamilton as a brilliant guy. Jefferson feared armies and loathed war, believing that isolated Republican America could avoid Europeans, Europe's endemic wars. He negotiated with patience and finesse. Although a diplomat, he was not a pacifist. The outrageous demands of the Barbary pirates maddened him, and he retaliated. Um, uh, okay, I mean, I, I think that this is, again, you're reading some things a little bit incorrectly with Jefferson and the Barbary pirates, but that's, that's fine. Uh, most unusual among, among American presidents, Jefferson acted as cultural and scientific leader. In the White House, he perfected a plow, championed smallpox inoculation, read Tacitus, played the violin, studied Indian vocabularies, collected mastodon bones, and had trees planted along Pennsylvania Avenue as part of his plan to make Washington, D.C. a distinguished city. Resilient, Jefferson survived the early death of his wife, the loss of all but one of his children, disgraces Governor of Virginia, a few with Alexander Hamilton, the disappointment of the 1807 embargo. Of course... No leader is perfect. So he says all, and this is where Gibbon, he says all these nice things about Jefferson, which is nice uh, because you don't often see that. I mean, people are very critical of Jefferson now. Jefferson's a bad guy. Jefferson had affairs with his slaves, but uh, that's all we know about Jefferson. So he says all these nice things. However, no leader is perfect. Jefferson never appreciated the importance of banking and finance, the specialty of his enemy, Alexander Hamilton. Yes, he did. That's a, that's a misstatement. Jefferson did appreciate banking and finance. He just didn't want the general government to control it. You could deal with big banks separately as long you could deal with big banks as long as they weren't tied to big government. That was Jefferson's real position. So Gibbon doesn't really know what he's talking about here. Jefferson was suspicious of organized finance, but he was really suspicious of organized finance when it was in bed with organized government. That was the problem. Organized finance can be dealt with on its own. This is the John Taylor, I mean, look, this is the Republican, the old Republican position. John Taylor of Caroline articulated this very well. So Jefferson wasn't, uh, it's not that he didn't appreciate the importance of banking and finance. He was afraid of banking and finance together with big government, big banks with big government. Jefferson minimized the significance of a strong judiciary epitomized by John Marshall, his nemesis. Well, um, he, Jefferson was concerned that the judiciary was running over the Constitution, and he was right about that. It wasn't that he was against a strong judiciary. I mean, Jefferson was fine with it in the state of Virginia. What he didn't like was the usurpation of power by the federal judiciary and, and running roughshod over the Constitution. This, again, is a misstatement. That's not what Jefferson was against. He was suspicious of people like John Marshall using the judiciary to harm the Constitution. That was the whole point. Caught between England and France, he miscalculated the effect of a trade embargo on the American economy. Um, okay. Well, uh, yeah, the embargo may not have been a very good idea. 
Um, on the other hand, he was trying to avoid war. And he did say, I mean, again, Drew McCoy, if you, if you read this, his book on republicanism, uh, Jefferson did say, well, this is going to stimulate American industry because we don't have all this. We're, we're, go we're going to actually help the American economy with the embargo. It didn't help New England shipping, but Jefferson really could care less about New England shipping. Um, it did help American industry. Uh, so there is that. I mean, so this is this position. He's uh, Gibbons taking a very Massachusetts-driven view of this particular position because New England shipping was crushed by the embargo. But infant American industry was perhaps helped by the embargo. So uh, there's two ways of looking at it. Now, now we can we can talk about the embargo constitutionally, which is a whole other issue, where I would say that the embargo was problematic constitutionally. But regardless. Uh, he hated slavery, but passed no legislation to curtail it. Well, so what? I mean, did anyone else uh, in the federal, was anyone else talking? Now, Jefferson did talk about ending the slave trade. That was a good thing. In fact, that particular legislation was passed during his administration. So he did, quote unquote, pass legislation to curtail it. I mean, what do people want? This is the thing. So then he says, Gibbon says, now along with the Hoster students, we acknowledge a guilty, conflicted slaveholder who did not transcend his time. This is just stupidity. That's just a stupid, presentist statement. Who else in America in 1807 or 1806 or 1805 was talking about ending slavery through the national, quote-unquote, national government? No one. No one. Uh, I mean, what do these people want? Slavery had barely even been abolished in New England at that point. Uh, so, I mean, this is this is an, it's just a stupid statement, uh, and I think it's one that's uh, that should just be called out for what it is: stupid. Uh, I, and he's giving he's actually uh, giving credit to these Hofstra students who are just a bunch of nincompoops. He's actually just he's, he's actually validating their stupidity. We shouldn't do that. These Hofstra students are idiots. So in a way, he's saying, yeah, Jefferson's great, but I mean, you Hofstra students kind of have something here because he didn't get rid of slavery. I mean, how how ridiculous can you be? But this is where we are in 2019 when it comes to uh, views of American history. Well, you know, Jefferson was a great man, but. He never passed any legislation abolishing slavery. Like that, I mean, that one thing right there, I mean, his whole career is just done. It's just ridiculous. Nevertheless, Jefferson brought to the American presidency a rare blend of idealism and pragmatism, character and political savvy, intellect and temperament, and modesty. Um, some of the things that he doesn't even bring up here. Look, when he says modesty, I mean, okay, Jefferson wanted to downgrade the office of the presidency. And he did so. The Jeffersonians were trying to rein in federal power, and they did so. I mean, this is the thing that's very important about Jefferson that we forget. Jefferson wanted to ensure the presidency was not an elected king. We need to give him credit for that. And while he was an ideologue in Virginia, this is something I wrote about Jefferson, uh, his vision of ideology stopped at his mountains. I mean, he, he was fine with reforming Virginia, but beyond that, 
you didn't find too much of Jefferson the Reformer in, in Pennsylvania at Pennsylvania Avenue. Jefferson was the president, but he wasn't someone who was going to foist his vision on anything on, on America on anyone else. That's the important thing to understand about Jefferson uh, when it came to, for example, education. Um, uh, he wasn't going to uh, foist his vision for what he thought would be good education reform on New England. In 1803, the citizens of Boston asked to make April 13th, Jefferson's birthday, a holiday. Courteously, Jefferson turned them down, saying he disapproved of, quote, transferring the honors and veneration for the great birthday of our republic to any individual. For the rest of his life, he refused to reveal to the public the day he was born. In the America of today, we might do well to recollect Jefferson's presidency. His sustain for rancor and what he called the boisterous ocean of political passions. Repeatedly vilified by political enemies, Jefferson did not lash out at critics publicly, but followed Ben Franklin's advice to avoid confrontation and political debate. In 1808, he wrote to his grandson, Thomas Jefferson Randolph, I never yet saw an instance of one or two disputes convincing the other by argument. I have seen many getting warm, becoming rude, and shooting one another. Um, Jefferson did... I mean, look, the whole Hemings thing would have been put to bed if Jefferson had ever responded to it, but he didn't. And he didn't because he didn't think it was dignified. Jefferson just avoided answering his critics. And this is something that um, I think is interesting. Um, we can look at the position, but one thing we can take, let's talk about that for just about a minute or so. Those that uh, believe, I mean, look, Trump has gotten very popular because he answers his critics, and he fights back hard, and people like that. They like that fighting spirit. On the other hand, you have the position, well, the critics can say what they want. We'll let my actions and the results prove it. And I think that was Jefferson's position, uh, prove my positions. I think that's Jefferson's position. I think that was Calhoun's position. They never really answered their critics. And we can look back at that and say, well, uh, overall, that led to a major problem for these individuals because... If they don't answer, well, then obviously the critique is true. So I think it's important to say, well, I mean, you need to hit back. Maybe you don't get into an engaged argument, but you at least state your positions and you state them forcefully and well. And by doing so, you take some of the steam and, and frankly, you make fun of the other side. You call them what they are. When they're stupid, you call them that. And uh, you call them out for their positions that are just fairy tale land. You have to do that. You have to hit back. Then you can avoid and say, look, I'm not going to debate you. Uh, I've, I've stated my case. There's no reason to debate. People can read what I've said or hear what I've said, and they can take for what they want. There's no reason to get into an, in, in, uh, to a lengthy argument about these things. That never does anything. Uh, and so I think this is important to understand in the modern era. It's important to hit back, but it's also important to understand that, you know, perhaps um, it's better just to hit back once and let it go. And that's that. Um, so I think that Jefferson is, and, I, and I've talked about this extensively in this podcast and other places, Jefferson is one of the most important people in American history. Uh, I think that the Jeffersonian position on the federal government, whether Jefferson was a purist or not, and I don't, I mean, we can obviously say he wasn't because of his second term as president, uh, is the vital position in saving America. Real federalism would save America. Uh, his suspicion of central banking and central government fused together 
was an important critique of American society, his suspicion of Hamilton's vision on American government and Hamilton's position on corruption is important. So Jefferson is an important person, and I and I and I am thankful that Peter Gibbon would actually take the time. Here's a a college professor saying, you know, we need to rethink Thomas Jefferson here. But then he gives he gives validity to these Hofstra morons by saying, well, I mean, Hofstra has a valid point here. No, they don't. No, they don't. I, I don't think we need to give any cover for these people. Just call them out for being idiots. If anyone in the founding generation and that group of people should be celebrated, it would be Washington and Jefferson. And so... I think that we need to recognize that. That's my position on Jefferson, at least one of my positions on Jefferson. I hope you enjoyed this uh, podcast in honor of Jefferson's birthday, just a few days late. And I'll see you next time on The Brian McClendon Show.